I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. On this week's episode of The Trade Guys, Bill and Scott talk about new developments in sanctions and export controls, including the ban on imports of Russian energy. They also discuss semiconductors and changes to Buy America. All that and more on this week's episode of The Trade Guys. Okay, hey, Trade Guys. We pick up where we left off last week, which is evolving sanctions and trade policy in response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Perhaps the biggest news this week in the U.S. relates to imports of energy from Russia. What's going on? Well, the crude oil imports uh, from Russia are banned at the moment via executive order. Actually, given how long the congressional ban on exports of crude oil persisted, I'm glad to see it. If you're going to do it, do it via executive order which the administration can revise when circumstances changed. The congressional ban on exports of crude oil was implemented in 1973 and just repealed about four or five years ago. So they tend to persist if they're congressional. But that's that's the step. We didn't import a lot, but it will put upward pressure on prices because Russia's crude oil was an efficient way to fill the demand for refined products at several refineries. So Hawaii is one of the places that uh, it turned out to be relatively efficient to have Russian crude in the mix. Without the, there are replacements for it, but none at the Russian price. And so uh, the Hawaii gasoline consumers will probably be the first to see $10 a gallon if they haven't already. So that was the move in a nutshell. In more general terms, it, it appears we've now sanctioned everything we possibly could think of from uh, corporate moves, uh, whether it's the Visa and MasterCard refusal to operate transactions or companies withdrawing, or the administrations or the government sanctions on individuals and entities and materials from Russia. Now, none of it so far has changed Russia's intention to continue to prosecute the war. So uh, we'll have to evaluate that. But that's where we stand now. I'm not sure there's a whole lot more we can do. The SWIFT network is probably at this point the bank financial transaction network. Any going any further on that seems to me would risk the oil and gas that Europe is purchasing from Russia. You would not have a way to pay for the oil and gas. And so you'd void the contracts if you canceled SWIFT. So there are probably some other implications there as well. But on a top line basis, we've done about what we can and the behavior is still the same. So maybe it's I was to interested think. to see that a lot of what Scott was just talking about was not due to government fiat, but by voluntarily done by companies. I mean, you can argue it's in response to public pressure, which I think it, it was, but it's more and more companies are simply pulling out. I think because both because they're outraged by what the Russians are doing, but also because their own customers are demanding this kind of action. So in a way, the, the actual behavior goes beyond the government sanctions. And I think that probably was unexpected on the part of the Russians as well. This I think there's been a groundswell of opposition to what they're doing, which I don't think they anticipated. I mean, Putin is living in the 30s in, in his approach to power politics, you know, but the rest of the world is in the 21st century. And I think that there's the attitude on a lot of people, if you just don't do this anymore, you know, you don't just gratuitously invade somebody and they want the Russians to pay, which I think is a good sign. If I can add one anecdote, Scott's point about flexibility is 
really good. And then we'll get back to that when we talk about PNTR and MFN in a few minutes. But all administrations want flexibility because they don't want to get locked into a statutory course of action, which doesn't give them uh, the opportunity to change anything when circumstances on the ground change. The oil story is a good one. The other one that to me is illustrative, is which is lost in history, but it was an interesting episode, was when Idi Amin was the uh, dictator of Uganda, we banned coffee imports. Congress enacted legislation to ban coffee imports, which was Uganda's biggest export at the time. So that, you know, everybody patted themselves on the back for them, uh, for that. And then a year or so later, Amin was deposed, moved to Saudi Arabia, and there was a new government. And what needed to happen was to have countries like the United States supporting the new government, help them recover, help them grow. It took Congress two additional years to repeal the embargo on coffee imports. Had it been an administrative embargo, the president could have done it with a stroke of the pen the week after Amin left uh, left town. So when you act by statute, you get locked into behavior, which is entirely sensible at the moment, but ends up not being sensible. And Congress doesn't move quickly enough to reflect changed circumstances. In terms of building in additional flexibility in domestic energy markets, what steps can the United States government take to keep energy prices low here? Should they pursue a highly academic whole enchilada approach to ramping up energy production here at home? Well, look, uh, we actually know pretty much what it takes because we were, on a North American basis, energy independent just a couple of years ago. So there is, it, it's not that difficult. I mean, I think what we have to reflect upon is how much are the current administration's commitment to this energy transition, how much of that is realistic from the standpoint of geopolitics, given the, the vulnerabilities that it obviously provides? To my mind, over the past month, the test market for uh, the energy transition has been run by Germany, and it was a failure. I mean, keep in mind, Germany decommissioned all its nuclear plants. They committed something on the order of a trillion dollars to renewables, and, and then realized that they were in no position to bargain geopolitically with the Russians when it came to the invasion of Ukraine. So now uh, Germany is making plans to reopen coal plants. That's genius. Okay. And so we know that now. All right. Back in my marketing days, we ran test markets all the time and not all of them succeeded. This one I think is worth, worth learning from. The energy transition will happen over time. If it happens over a longer time period, that's not, in my view, not catastrophic, particularly at the, the UN midpoint estimates instead of the extreme estimates. So, but you've got to consider the importance of geopolitics in all this. And so my view is we actually know how to become energy independent in the United States. We did it on a recent terms. All you have to do is read Daniel Jurgen's latest book, The New Map. That's the guide, guidebook. It's not that conceptually difficult. It faces few engineering difficulties. You know, uh, what it does face is a, is a deficit of, of capital to go do it because the market has been pointing in different directions. And it takes uh, the government to uh, permit it, basically, to be a partner in implementing the move back to hydrocarbon independence instead of opposing it. So it's one of those things. We just It's a choice rather than a, a real I'm, problem. I'm gloomier than Scott is and kind of curmudgeonly about this. I think he's talking kind of about the medium and long term because you can you can scale up, but that's not going to make much difference in the short term uh, in terms of the price of the pump next week. And the proposals that have been made are all, I think, minor palliatives, you know, break out the strategic petroleum reserve, you know, uh, suspend the gas tax. You're talking pennies here. 
you know, maybe you're going to get it down from what, what the current average is, 4.17 a gallon. Maybe that gets it down to $4 a gallon or maybe even 3.70 a gallon. You know, the larger market forces here are calling the tune. And I think it would be a mistake to basically waste a lot of money, forego a lot of taxes by doing any of these minor palliative things. I mean, Biden, I think, is on the right track. He's being tactful about it. But basically, uh, you know, somebody needs to tell the American people that there are important issues at stake here, like peace, uh, freedom, democracy, and we need to suck it up, you know, and, and deal with it. Biden was right that, you know, if you want a sanction regime that's going to be effective, it's going to bite in both directions. Uh, it's inevitable that it bites in both directions. And you can do things to try to mitigate the harm. But at the end of the day, you, it's not cost free. One of my criticisms of this administration has been that they, particularly in the trade area, they've been inclined to say, oh, we can do Buy America, we can do all these procurement rules, and it won't cost anybody anything, which is nonsense. It will cost a lot. Here, at least, I think they're leveling with the people and say this is going to hurt. And it, what Scott's talking about is, I think, entirely feasible, but it runs directly into our climate goals. And I don't agree with him that it's not catastrophic. I think we're heading toward a major climate crisis. And in this country, transportation emissions are, are I think, the single largest thing. Uh, Emily, you can correct me if I'm wrong. We had a discussion about that last week. That's not true in the world necessarily, but I think it's true here. If gas is more expensive, maybe that's going to mean that people drive less, which is good. And maybe it's going to mean that uh, it's going to accelerate the transition to electric vehicles, which is also good. And I don't particularly want to slow that down. Well, I wish all the best of luck to all the Democratic office holders on the ballot this November, and I hope that Vladimir Putin did it works better than it does now. <laughs> Otherwise, it'll be a bloodbath. To my mind, I would take the initiative now. And I agree with Bill. The short-term measures are basically useless. But if you had a long-term, more balanced approach and sort of all the above energy strategy, you'd be better positioned geopolitically. You, you would give the American voter a reason to cope with high prices now because you've got a, a program that is sensible in the mid to long term. I know uh, Senator Wyden's been chairman of the Finance Committee for a number of years, but I'd like to see him channel Lloyd Benson or, or some of his predecessors who would really create a, a package of the a broader energy independence package that would be some of everything and would attract a lot of, a lot of votes, much as I always remind people that the uh, famous Reagan tax cuts, both Senator Kennedy and Senator Kerry, liberals from Massachusetts, supported final passage of the, uh, the Reagan tax cuts. That was because it was good for Massachusetts. And so uh, the Senate can probably do this better than the House can. But, you know, I, I do think it takes some imagination. But agree totally with Bill that the short term measures another day or two's uh, consumption out of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve does nothing. Uh, all of it's sort of superficial. But if you don't have superficial, you might have might as well try substantive to, or tell the voters Vlad did it. So <laughs> I know which I'd choose. OK, well, speaking of Vlad did it, let's talk about ENTR and countermeasures. There's been a, a bit of a roller coaster this week on the possibility of revoking permanent normal trade relations, PNTR, with Russia. But bills introduced in Congress, 
Then the White House apparently asked Congress to back off a bit. Is it a good idea to revoke PNTR with Russia? And what does this risk in terms of potential retaliation from Putin? Well, I happen to think it's a bad idea for a couple of reasons. First, keep in mind that the notion of a temporary normal trade relations and the difference between temporary and permanent was a piece of legislation from the 70s, the so-called Jackson-Vanek Amendment of the Trade Act of 74, which took some countries and required them to meet certain criteria, including congressional approval, in order to grant them permanent normal trade relations. The fact is, the United States, as a member of the WTO, the predecessor of the GATT, has as an obligation, we have to grant this normal trade status or, or most favored nation status to all other members. At the moment, Russia is a member. It's member in a customs union with Belarus and Kazakhstan. I don't the, the other party, but Kazakhstan. There you go. Thanks. Bill's memory better than mine today. So, but in any case, this customs union and we need to, we have to extend them permanent normal trade relations in order to meet our obligations, the WTO. And without that, Russia can treat us any way they like. That's important when it comes to countermeasures. The second point is on a practical basis. What happens with the U.S. trade policy is if you do not have MFN or normal trade relations, you face what's called column two tariffs, which are column two are the tariffs from Smoot-Hawley, the protectionist legislation of 1930. And on many items, those Smoot-Hawley tariffs are, are prohibitively high. They would stop trade entirely. And it turns out the things we import from Russia, the, the major imports, there's not much difference between their current MFN tariffs, which is our best rate that we extend to all our, our trading partners, and the column two tariffs. The thing is, on a practical level, it doesn't hurt Russia. Taking away MFN does not hurt Russia, given what they import to us now. Second, taking it away helps Russia because it makes it easier for them to discriminate against us, which they appear ready to do by, by essentially uh, not selling certain materials to us. So the, this is a list is undetermined at the moment. But so it's in many ways, withdrawing most favored nation or permanent normal trade relations is a lose-lose for the United States. That's basically I, why I agree with Scott. It. It's a bad idea. But uh, my reasoning is a little bit different. But let me add an historical note or two. When Smoot-Hawley was signed, which President Hoover did, he wanted to keep tariffs high on end products, finished products, but he wanted tariffs on raw materials and parts and components to be low because that would enable American manufacturers to make their products more cheaply. That he didn't want them to have to compete with finished products from elsewhere, but he wanted their raw materials to be cheap. That actually has been a reflection of our tariff schedules for a very long time. It turns out that most of our imports from Russia are raw materials minerals in particular. So on a lot of these uh, duties, the, the MFN duty is zero and the column two duty is zero. And removing them from MFN would, as a practical matter, not make any difference. The other reason that I've been opposed to it, and Scott alluded to this, is, is the institutional question. This is in a way in the uh, two wrongs don't make a right category, although the Russian wrong is really, really big. And this is this wrong is really small. But the fact is that, you know, as long as they're a WTO member, 
we are obligated to give them MFM treatment. If we take that away, then we're breaking the rules. We already have a long list of areas where the United States has broken the rules, I think. Steel tariffs, the 301 tariffs, the electric vehicle proposal, uh, tax credit proposal for the Biden administration, their government procurement proposals. It's not healthy for the organization, or I think for us, to sort of add a new item to the list that undermines the organization. That said, you can predict the way this will play out. The administration asked them not to do it. They took it out of the bill. The administration has not said, at least as of an hour ago, why they wanted it taken out. There have been several suggestions put forward. One was flexibility, which we've already talked about. They want to be able to be flexible. Although I think the proposal would have given the president the authority to restore it on his own initiative under certain circumstances. But they probably wanted flexibility. They also, I think, wanted to act in concert with their European allies. And while we might say that doing it for the United States may not make much difference because the tariffs are not that much different, I don't know if you can say that about Europe or not. Plus, their trade with Russia is a lot more. So they may have a different calculation. I know they're considering it, exactly the same thing, and they don't seem to have come to a conclusion. I think the administration wants to be in lockstep with them. I would like to say that the main reason was what I said first, which was they're concerned about the systemic consequences and concerned about undermining the WTO. But I'm not holding my breath for them to make that argument. I suspect it was more pragmatic. But I can tell you what will happen, which is I suspect we'll probably do it at some point. The Russians, if they care, will file a complaint at the WTO because they're members And then there will be a panel, we'll win or lose. I can talk about the odds of that if anybody cares, but we will claim the Article 21 national security exemption. And Article 21 says that you can take actions to protect your uh, national security. This has been litigated. This, by the way, is the rationale that Trump used for the steel tariffs, that steel imports threaten our national security. Biden administration would argue that the Russian invasion threatens our national security. That's probably an easier argument to make than the steel argument. But the reality is that we would act, the Russians would protest, there would be a panel, we would argue Article 21, somebody would lose, whoever loses would appeal. And then, as we've discussed before, there's no appellate process, so it goes into dispute settlement uh, purgatory for, you know, an indefinite period. And, you know, unlike the Catholics in the 16th century, there are no indulgences here. But what happens is the sinners get to keep on sinning, and basically we would get away with it. I mean, that has led to this other bizarre discussion in Congress about, well, let's kick them out of the WTO. And there's a certain logic to that, because if you kick them out of the WTO, then we have no obligations to them. We wouldn't be breaking the rules if they were not WTO members. The problem with that is that there is no process in the WTO for kicking anybody out. Not to mention that all decisions in the WTO thus far have been they made by They do have consensus. on paper, they have voting in the WTO, but there's an organization that has never voted. A former congressman and former appellate body member, uh, Jim Backus, has pointed out that you could probably use a procedure in Article 10 to achieve the, the necessary result, but it would require two votes and two supermajorities. It would require a two-thirds vote to change the rules presumably to set up, you know, an expulsion procedure or something. If Russia did not accept the rules change, it would require a three-fourths vote to expel them. On paper, that exists, but for an organization that's never voted, and to get that kind of a majority, I think, will be difficult. I mean, the UN General Assembly passed a resolution, I think it was 141 to 5, condemning Russia, but there were also 35 abstentions. 
141.5 is a little bit misleading. There were a lot of countries that simply did not want to get caught in the middle of this conflict. And I think if the WTO attempted to take this up, you know, there would be more than a few countries that would object to taking it up. I don't see kicking them out being a viable strategy. You can have the same effect by doing what Scott and I have been talking about. If you remove PNTR, you don't kick them out, but you deny them the benefit, which is probably as good as you can get. My uh, instinct would be to try to convince people to focus on other more important issues, but Congress isn't always persuadable on these issues. And so Bill's, Bill's right that we haven't heard the last of this issue. Let's turn now to sanctions and semiconductors, another hot issue. If China chooses not to comply with Russia's sanctions, it could reduce the efficacy of efforts to starve Russia, including its military, of inputs that they need to stay up and running. This week, U.S. Secretary of Commerce Raimondo warned against Chinese evasion of U.S. sanctions, saying that the U.S. could cripple Chinese semiconductor production, including SMIC. How could the U.S. do this? And does China even produce the same types of chips that Russia would demand? Well, on the latter question, yes. On the larger question, I think she overspoke. I mean, she's not entirely wrong, but the way this particular sanction works is that it's the application of what's called the foreign direct product rule, which is a rule that expands the extraterritoriality of our export control structure. Our export control structure has always been extraterritorial. And historically, we've argued that we have the authority to control exports if they contain an appropriate percentage of U.S. content, even if they're made overseas. And the standard is 25%. Uh, in most cases, there's a smaller category for 10%. But for most cases, if they have more, if a product like a chip made, say, in Taiwan has more than 25% U.S. content, we can control its, its export, even though it's in Taiwan and not, you know, subject to, from the Taiwanese point of view necessarily to American jurisdiction. The Trump administration expanded that concept via what's called the foreign direct product rule to say that we can now control foreign products, products made overseas, not just based on their content, but based on whether or not they were manufactured with American technology and manufactured with American equipment. And this is relevant to semiconductors. The Trump administration applied this only to Huawei and, and semiconductors for Huawei. Well, I think other equipment also for Huawei. Biden has extended it to Russia in very specific terms to Russian military and in broader terms to, to Russia generally. And that means that it, it impacts a whole bunch of countries, most of whom use American semiconductor manufacturing equipment you know, equipment to cut the wafers, equipment to deposit the little design onto the chip, cut the wafers. All this stuff is American equipment. We're not the only source, and we're not the source at the very highest end. But the chips that the China makes indigenously, which their main company, SMIC, makes, are not the highest end chips, and they appear to rely on American manufacturing equipment. So Secretary Raimondo is right. They would be caught by our limitations, and we could tell the Chinese, you may not export these chips to Russia because they're made with U.S. technology. I'm not sure that cripples SMIC in the sense that the equipment is already there, so they can keep on making the chips, and we can't stop them from making the chips. We can tell them that we will not give them an export license to license the chips, which would put them in violation of U.S. law. It's not entirely clear to me what happens if they say, so what? 
we're going to do it anyway. We, we're not going to go to China and pull out the machines that make the chips. We may have to take some other sanction. I think in a way, this is kind of an irrelevant question in the sense that China is not going to announce their compliance with the sanctions, but they are also not going to announce that they're violating the sanctions. They're walking a very fine line here. And the question will not be what they say. It will be how much leakage they permit. I think it's too early to say. My guess is there will be some, but they may very well find it in their interest to complicate Russia's life on some of this stuff. They don't really want to risk running afoul of us. They have very ambitious plans to expand their semiconductor sector. That means they're going to be buying a lot more American machinery to make chips. And I think they don't want to put that at risk to sell a few more to the Russians. So my guess is you'll see leakage, but you're not going to see open defiance. It feels about right. We won't know for quite a while on this, but this is a place where Bill has spent enough of his professional life on this particular topic that I certainly trust his judgment. And we're going to have to wait and see how things develop. Let's move now to a domestic trade policy change. Last week, Biden unveiled new Buy America rules. What does this change and what are the benefits or drawbacks of the new rule changes? Well, let me start with the grumpiness, which is, look, Buy America is always good politics. And at least for its entire existence as a procurement tool, it's always been bad economics. Let me talk about kind of where we were before this new rule. And I'm going to quote our friend of the program, Gary Huffbauer from the Peterson Institute, who's, who did work on this topic pretty recently. In 2017, he published on it. And it turns out that basically the Buy America rules, as they existed prior to this announcement, added a roughly a 5.6% cost premium on all U.S. procurement, so roughly $1.7 trillion of government procurement. So that's $94 billion that the American taxpayer got to pay extra in order to have this lovely soundbite that we we're buying America, which doesn't sound like much, but keep in mind, we're $30 trillion in debt at this point. So that, that's the program operates in a way that it's very popular because of its name and branding. It continues to be a pretty expensive way to do business. These changes make it more expensive because the rules are more stringent. And so I sort of see this as sort of, this is Trumpian policy without the mean tweets. So Bill, you can probably... I think it will end up being kind of a yawn, although the end result may be very different from what the administration expects. I think one of the things we've talked about when this came up in the past, we have a what, $22 trillion economy. Federal government procurement of goods in 2020, I think, was in the neighborhood of $360 billion. Federal government procurement is a small piece of the total economy. For a handful of companies who make their living selling to the government, the government rules are very important. But for a lot of companies, they may say if when, this, when the content floor for U.S. content goes up to 75% in 2029, I think you're going to find companies saying, this is not worth the trouble. We don't sell that much to the federal government. We're not going to reorient our entire supply chain simply to meet a standard for a small fraction of our total production. We're simply not going to sell to the feds. And we're going to continue our supply chains because it would cost us more to build in that percentage of American content than we're going to be earning in, in sales. And we'll just be done with it. It's a little bit like the argument that has been made. I think we'll see data on this one sooner in the uh, USMCA auto case, where the car tariff is 2.2.5%. And the issue that came up is if you're going to put in rules of origin that require greater American content, if the result of that is to raise car companies' costs more than 2.5%, 
the logical thing for them to do is just stay where you are, keep the supply chain you've got and pay the tariff because you're going to be worse off altering your supply chains. It's going to cost you more. And I know the truck tariff is different because the truck tariff is 25%, which is a much bigger hurdle to overcome. But this may be the same thing. Companies may end up saying 75%, it's just not worth it. And so this may end up being counterproductive from the administration's point of view, because what will happen is companies will stop doing business with the federal government, which will narrow their choice. It will also make their purchases more expensive and it will cost the taxpayer more money, which is what Scott was getting at earlier. But it will also narrow the options they've got, which is probably not a good thing for the government. Bill's, I think, got this right. And all I could say is as a business guy who used to be a lobbyist, the two things I could never convince a politician were of being important were first opportunity cost, which is vitally important to any business decision. Politicians ignore it constantly. And the other is diminishing returns. This is a clear case where I think diminishing returns have set in on the content level and every increase to the percentage of U.S. content required will create other problems and ultimately reduce the benefit to the government or any particular producer. So... Good luck with all that. Well, uh, that wraps up this week's episode of The Trade Guys. Thank you, Bill and Scott. And thank you to all the listeners for tuning in. Thank you. Thanks. To our listeners, if you have a question for The Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have The Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.